Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Have You Seen, the podcast for people who love TV. Now I've got good news and I've got bad news this week. Let's get the bad news out of the way. I'm afraid Mariella is away this week, so I hope listeners will bear with us as our producer Owen and I try to stumble valiantly on without her. Don't worry, she'll be back next Thursday when normal service will be resumed. But the good news is that today we're going to be discussing the new series of The Crown, which has just dropped on Netflix. And I'm delighted to say that my special guest for our Crown special, the first ever Have You Seen special, is its executive producer and the man behind it, Andy Harris. So, Andy, welcome. Thank you for coming along and taking part in our Crown special. Pleasure, Peter. Lovely to be here. <laughs> Andy is, if you will, the power behind the throne of the crown. And he runs Left Bank Pictures, the production company that makes the show. He's also had a hugely successful and story career that's had nothing to do with the crown. He produced TV hits as varied as The Royal Family, Prime Suspect and Cold Feet. Oh, and he was also nominated for an Oscar as the producer of The Queen, which saw Helen Mirren win the Best Actress Oscar for the role of Queen Elizabeth in 2007. Andy, the first four episodes of the final series of The Crown are out now, and the final six are out in December. How's it been? Well, um, every launch increasingly on The Crown has a certain, seems to generate a certain fever, excitement, interest, and the world and their wife have a view on it, don't they? From, from, from all of social media to pretty much every national newspaper, television, radio, and everything else. It's, uh, it's been a busy few days. So just the sheer column inches, it would, be, it would be fair to say, it makes it different from anything else you've ever been involved in. Yes, I, I, I think the volume of noise around the crown which seems to get bigger and bigger each season, is it, pretty extraordinary. It's been out five days, I think, and about a week by the time this podcast goes out. Do you know how many people have watched it? Well, I should know something like that because I'm pretty familiar now with Netflix numbers. Uh, it will be hundreds of thousands, uh, yeah. probably heading to millions, actually. Uh, Netflix's numbers are pretty, pretty extraordinary. I mean, you know, when they drop, they drop globally. They drop everywhere in the entire world. And uh, uh, Well, one, one statistic I read about The Crown, which I've I got to admit really surprised me, though I'd never thought about it before, is that I think 12% of its audience is in the UK. That's right. No, it's a very low percentage when you think of how UK-centric it is. That's absolutely right. It is quite small, 12%, uh, and which is why, you know, one has to balance 
the reviews and the reaction in the UK against the rest of the world, just as the French have turned on Napoleon, Ridley Scott's Napoleon, uh, where the rest of the world seem to adore it. The UK critics have, have not all piled in. It's been very, the, the reviews have, it's a bit Marmite, isn't it, the current series? It's interesting you say that because I think the overall impression I have is that it's it becomes ever bigger an event each November, because it tends to launch in November. And I've read some good reviews of it, and I've read some that have a go at it. But I don't find myself thinking, oh, the world's turned on the crown. I just think this is all par for the course. If you, you, you know, if you make something that has such a huge reach as this, then somebody's going to come at it from an angle that isn't the angle you want to cut. And so I didn't see it as any more than that. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, absolutely right. I mean, we've been a very successful show for a very long time. You know, this and... Uh, in other words, it's in that sort of category of what you would call critic-proof. I think this is true of anything, isn't it? It's true of painting, it's true of music, it's true of all the arts that, in the end, people find things when they come along, they're new and they're dazzling, they're interesting, they're exciting and they're good. They get much praise, they get very very much enjoyed. And then after a period of time, people are searching for something new or, or as you say, perhaps feel it's critic-proof so the critics just sharpen their knives a little bit more and feel that it's okay to give it a go. After all, you know, it's a lot easier, isn't it, to, to, to criticise something, to actually create something. So Definitely. I don't think people care about the reviews anyway, to be perfectly honest with you. I well, know. that's when I say when I say it's critic proof. However many thousands of people I I read that the, the last series, series five, launched in last year in, in November twenty twenty two, and in the first seven days, a hundred and seven million hours of it have been watched. That's sort of quite hard to get your head around that, isn't it? That it, so it, many people very hard. in so many countries yeah. are watching it and living the experience of it. Yeah, and every series of The Crown has gone up and up and up, which is, again, is very unusual in television. You usually get a, you know, you launch well, you might do well in the second series, and then it usually starts to dip. So, Do you think there may be a kind of inverted sense here that as you've got closer to now, to the sort of modern age and to things in people recent memory, it becomes easier to criticise in a way because people say, well, I remember that and it wasn't like that or whatever. Whereas, you know, when it started in the 1950s, most of us have no memory of that. Well, that's true. Although, you know, the crown, Peter particularly has, well, it's Peter really, has always had a rule essentially of not writing about anything which is much less than at least 10 years and ideally more. And in this case, 20 years uh, since the events. He likes perspective. He needs, you know, if you like, 20 years since the event to be able to kind of, you know, work out what his take is on that. And that's the on the basis of time having settled, books having come out, people having got older and reflections. And and I think with, with the passing of time, it's an awful lot easier to judge history. So even with something like Diana, Diana's death was 25 years ago. So anyone under 30 would not, will not remember it particularly. People over 30, Yes, they would have some. Uh, they would have an interesting take on it, but I think what so what we're able to do with the crown, and I think this is what we've done all the way through, is to provide a very reasoned and smart way of looking at a lot of stories that that and put them in context, if you like, put them in context in terms of the role of the monarchy in life, and in terms of the context of how they fitted at the time into British society. I knew you have to sort of sign the Netflix equivalent of the Official Secrets Act, but we've got six more episodes coming out next month, which does take us to the end. Uh, are you able to tell us 
you know, where that takes us up to, because the four that dropped last week take us up to the aftermath. They take us actually up to the same week, if you like, the same period that Peter and you covered before in your very successful film, The Queen. But we're going to go beyond that now to to where, or can you not tell me? We decided to end the series in 2005, which was the year that... Charles uh, and Camilla Charles and Camilla got married. That's absolutely yeah. right. So the, the final story isn't just about that. It, that's part of it. Yes. The themes are grand, I think, in the final film, which Stephen Daughter has directed. Um, oh, well, I was going to come to Stephen. Yeah, so, yeah no, okay. no, it's a really, really well, good film. Well, that's fantastic. No, the final film is absolutely superb, and I think it pulls together a lot of the strands and themes of the whole series in, in a really beautiful and very emotional way. And as we get towards that, kind of more upbeat ending I have a sense that Prince Charles or King Charles obviously as he is now is changing as a character the portrayal of him in the four episodes we've seen of the last series is a more positive portrayal than in earlier series he's the one in the immediate aftermath of Diana's death who shows the emotional sensitivity to say to the Queen, you've got to take this seriously, you've got to come down to London and and so on. There's also a lovely scene, the last time he and Diana ever see each other, when they talk about, you know, they didn't have a good marriage, but maybe they can have a good divorce and so on. And he's turned into, if you like, a warmer and more sympathetic character. Do you think that's a fair observation, or do you think he's the same all the way and our view of him has changed? Well, that's a difficult question for you to answer. I think, it, you know, with the different performances and the different Charleses and the different stories that we've charted, it's not always easy to simplify how a character like that evolves. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that you think that about Charles. I don't think that's a deliberate decision by Peter, particularly to make Charles sympathetic in this series. I think it's about how he felt Charles was during what, you know, what was obviously a very tough period where Diana died. When you um, read or you hear that people, particularly younger people, we are talking about before about how old you need to be to remember the death of the Princess of Wales, there are whole audiences out there for whom their perception of these events is partly shaped by the Crown. Does that responsibility weigh heavily on you, that you're providing a first draft of history, if you like, and that the draft might stick, it might stick with people even if it isn't quite true? Well, that's, that's, a, that, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. And I think it's worth debating. Is our version of history a definitive version of history? No. It's subjective, like every version of history. You probably would expect me to call upon all these sort of examples of Shakespeare writing his version of history back in the day and many other people writing their versions of history now. I mean... He wouldn't put Queen Elizabeth on stage because he'd have had his head chopped off. (laughs) That's probably true. Well, I I, I think that, you know, that's where, you know, certainly the evolution of television film, of of the arts, if you like, we, we live in a world where we are able to depict our prime ministers, uh, our political leaders, if you like, our monarchs in dramas without fear of execution or or (laughs) political imprisonment. I think, look, making any programme brings a level of responsibility. Making a programme as expensive as ours and as detailed as ours brings with it a level of responsibility. But of course we understand that and we think about that a great deal as we tell the stories. We think about it on the stories we tell, how we tell the stories, and and ultimately it's Peter's choice as to who says what in the show. Of course it's all Peter's imagination uh, which is fed through a very rigorous and well Research structure. I think it's true that 
Sarah Ferguson rang up once and said she'd like to advise you on the depiction of her character. Is, <laughs> is, is, one, is that true? Because it sounds so bizarre. And two, is that the only case of minor members of the royal family, the Duke of Kent ringing up and saying, why haven't I been in it yet? It's time you had a storyline based around me. Well, there have been a few examples of members of the royal family or the circle around the royal family getting in touch. There was one particular moment when Ku Stark rang me up. She got straight straight through to me and uh, offered her services. For many people, uh, they probably won't remember the Ku Stark story, such as it was. I mean, if I can recall it, she was uh, briefly a girlfriend of Prince Andrew and had some sort of involvement in in some X-rated movies of some description, and that gave enough for the tabloids to feed off it and have a lot of fun. She seemed very sure that we were going to feature her in the series and uh, and therefore rang to offer her advice and services. Now, um, Kustart was never going to feature. You know, I think one day... Peter might well, or maybe, you know, other producers might reveal many of the stories that we decided not to feature. You know, I think we have often taken the high road here. There are many examples where members of the royal family have been involved in fairly tawdry events, which we have not covered. I'm thinking particularly perhaps of, of Fergie. You know, who, who who doesn't feature heavily in, in the series? You didn't do toe-sucking, did you? No. No, you didn't no we did not. Else. Because it wasn't because it wasn't a good story or an interesting story. It, just, it, was, it was not central to the theme of the show. Yes. It's not central to, you know, the drive of the show, which is really to look at the prism of modern life through the eyes of the monarchy. Um, uh, it was a sideshow, and I think we've done well to avoid the really silly sideshows. While we have, of course, gone into some depth is where the sideshow was particularly intriguing, like a guy breaking, like Michael Fagan's it was, breaking into the Buckingham Palace, which was an isolated incident, but a really interesting way to examine. Well, I, I felt from the very beginning that the Queen was not an easy character to bring to life dramatically, being a reserved person and a person who did things in a very particular way and in some ways not somebody who changed with the kind of passing winds of fashion and so on and so forth obviously very sadly last year the queen died when you were making the last series of the crown am i am i right in thinking you would have been shooting it then yeah we just started did that in any way affect what you were shooting or make you revisit things in a way of thinking well we either we can say this now that we couldn't when the queen was alive or we don't want to say this because she's recently died. We talk about two different worlds, the real world and the world of the crown, and the two are on different tram lines completely. Well, the death of the Queen was uh, very sad and cast quite a shadow over the show for several weeks. We stopped filming immediately and didn't pick up uh, filming for several days. I think we all felt the shadow of her death uh, fall right across the production in many, many ways, actually. And I think that what followed with Charles's uh, ascent to the monarchy, then the launch of Series 5, was a pretty difficult time for us, I think. I think people couldn't disassociate themselves from the reality and the fiction, and I understand that. It, it didn't change anything dramatic for us, because in a sense the last 20 years of her reign were never go- going to be dramatically brought to life by us anyway, in that sense. But I think it just, it was a reminder to us that we were ourselves heading towards the end of our show. We had always imagined that the series was about her looking at British history through uh, spanning the decades when she was reigning. So the fact that her reign had come to an end heralded the end of our show. This most recent series is really largely about Di, isn't it? And also 
creates really interesting characters out of both Mohammed Al-Fayed and his son, Dodi Fayed. And Dodi Fayed in particular, who in real life terms is a quite a shadowy figure. We didn't know Dodi Fayed other than, you know, the tragic last few weeks of his life when he was in a relationship with Princess Diana and then he died. And yet in this series, you brought him to life on screen and his father, who's a very vividly drawn character. I think this is one of the things that The Crown does incredibly well, which is to bring people to the fore, stories to the fore, that people simply weren't really aware of. I think Mohammed al Fai got a fantastically rich exploration in Series 5, and that has continued in Series 6, along with Dodie. I think that's right. People didn't know or don't know very much about Dodie. We had to, you know, do a lot of research to... Was he as browbeaten by his father as he is in The Crown from the research that you did? Because he's really... You just know as a person he'll never emerge from the shadow of his very dominant, domineering father. Well, who's to know whether he, whether he would have done or not? I, I think it's safe to say that he had a very, very close relationship with his father. His father had control of the purse strings and everything that Dodie wanted to do, like making chariots of fire and the likes of that, was all really, really controlled by Dad. I think he never got to the stage in life uh, that he was able to break break free. I find with Alphide himself, because you could very, very easily portray him as a very unsympathetic character. It's a social climber. He's kind of using his son as bait for Princess Diana in a rather distasteful way. But it's a kind of tribute to the performance from the actor, who I think is absolutely brilliant as Al Fayed, that you kind of see his point of view. The establishment are very snobbish towards him. They won't let him in. He just wants to join this party. And for reasons that you could say are racist or are just plain snobbery, they won't let him. Yes, uh, Sal Indor is an absolutely fantastic actor. And just to go back to my point, when Peter was thinking about the whole Diana story, I think it was one of the things he really wanted to do was to explore, the, if you like, the other side. Yeah. Uh, Mohammed uh, Fayed's view, Dodi's view, just how the two families, if you like, collided in this very, very unfortunate and sad story. Because overwhelmingly, The Crown is a British story, of course. It's the British royal family. But here you have a story with an Egyptian perspective, and I'm assuming that there's a huge audience for The Crown in Egypt and in other countries in the Arab world, where this is, if you like, probably the one big storyline in the whole of The Crown that has that perspective. Yeah, I think there's a reference in, in, in the current series to the fact that the Arab world was very fascinated by Dodi and what Dodi was, if you like, had achieved with his relationship with Diana. This actually goes back to when we were making The Queen. I remember Peter thinking at the time he just didn't have the room to really explore Mohammed al or Dodi at the time. So the Crown gave him the opportunity to dive deeper and to make a much more balanced version of the story. <laughs> 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's go back to the very beginning. I'd like to go back to the origins of the crown and we ought to say to our listeners you came in to pitch this series to me <laughs> i was the director of itv at the time andy harris rings up and says i've got an exciting new project you might be interested in can i come in for a meeting i say yes he says i'm coming with stephen daldry and peter morgan quite impressive people to have on either side of you in a pitch meeting and that is the crown i think you sent us a script to read before so that we knew exactly what it was i was there thinking you've probably gone to see the BBC as well. I don't want it to go to the BBC. <laughs> so my entire strategy in the meeting was to prevent you going to the BBC. And then at the end of the meeting, I said, what happens next? You said, I'm off to America to talk to some people in America about it, <laughs> at which I thought, I'll never hear from you again. And indeed, I didn't. But tell me about your memory of that. And, you know, going back, for, you know, obviously to the audience, the play, the excellent play that Peter wrote, which is the weekly audience between the Queen and all her prime ministers. How did it all it evolve? All, it's a big old job. It's a big old royal trail. Royal isn't it? roller coaster. I, 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 have a, I have a slightly of a view that all of this sort of probably started in the week that Diana died for real when Peter and I were both in London. And anyone who was in London at that time will remember how what a very, very strange time it was. It was kind of eerie, and nobody was talking about anything else other than Diana. There was a kind of absolute sort of national incomprehension about what had happened. And all these flowers were piling up at Kensington Palace, and it just seemed like the world just sort of come to a total standstill. It was very, very strange. And Peter and I discussed it a lot, trying to make sense of it, as everyone was doing. And I think we sort of vowed at some point that, to do just that, to try to see whether we could find some way of dramatising it to try and make sense of it. So it was sort of tucked away as something we might do in the future. And then Peter and I, who were working together a lot, Peter came up with the idea of doing a film about Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and their battle, or their, their rivalry, if you like, for the, the Labour Party. And what was interesting about that as a film, which we made for Channel that 4... was the deal. Yeah. It was called The Deal. But it broke ground again because it was the first time that a living prime minister was depicted as such in a proper dramatic story. It wasn't just a case of getting away with it, actually. I think it was a very pro-Tony Blair, Gordon Brown film. But it was interesting that somehow the barriers of what one were able to do were being gently pushed back. Were the kind of lawyers or commissioners or whatever saying, you can't do this? You, oh, you know? my heavens, yes. Well, we had, had more than that. I mean, there was an executive at ITV. The person who ran ITV did not want us to do that. He, uh, and, uh, Can you name names? <laughs> 
I can tell this story reasonably well without. Okay. But I mean, what basically happened was that I, Peter had the idea and had phoned me up and I said, it's great. And we started working on it. And I think he, yeah, as ever, started writing the script or maybe wrote the script. I can't remember now exactly. So I rang up Nick Elliott at ITV Drama and he loved the idea. We sent him the script and he loved it. And he basically commissioned it. And then about a week later, he called me up and said, you're going to be told not to do this. I'm just giving you the heads up right now. From further up the chain at ITV. From further up the chain at ITV, right at the very top of ITV. But not for editorial, but for political reasons. Political reasons. There was extreme nervousness that somehow making a film about the current prime minister would not, or might not, should say possibly, do ITV, quote, or the ITV senior management any favours. So almost as soon as uh, I put the phone down to Nick Elliott, I reached for the phone to Channel 4. And I spoke to Tessa Ross and urged her to throw us a lifeline immediately, which she did. And, so and it that, was a great success. And it was a great four. success, yeah. Huge respect. But with hindsight, and I'm not going to push you again on who that person was at ITV, but you can see they were completely wrong because what were the negative consequences that would have come from making that film? Well, they were wrong. Or broadcasting. No, no, they, I think they were wrong. But that's often the way that people uh, yeah. people who run television don't really understand it and don't understand really the impact television can make. I think, they, you know... Yeah, I mean, they were they were completely wrong. Really. But the deal was done as a TV film for, for Channel 4. Yes. The Queen was a feature film. The Queen was a feature film, yeah. After the deal, we were looking for something else to do together, another big subject, if you like. Having sort of done the Prime Minister, what we sort of could, do, could we do next? And just by chance, I had brought Helen Mirren back to Prime Suspect and revived Prime Suspect after it being off the air for about six or seven years. And so... We were, I was having a read-through in Soho when Helen turned up. Now, Helen hadn't really been in the country for many, many years. She was living in L.A. at the time. So it was a bit of, it was pretty novel to see Helen strolling around Soho. And I couldn't help notice that when she came into the read-through, people were so sort of mesmerised by, by her that they sort of bowed in a sort of regal manner. <laughs> and I was sort of sitting there watching this thinking, oh, my God, she's just like the Queen. And then Anybody thought, less than Jane Tennyson, <laughs> Prime Tuspit and... Anybody less regal couldn't imagine. Well, but I know what you mean. Yeah. As an actress, well, she, was, she had that kind of stature. Yeah, well, this was just yeah. when she was yeah. meeting the makeup people yes, and the script yes. people and just wandering around. This was before she as I said, sat down and, and started to become Tennyson. But the, um, and it, I, it, I don't know, it just went off. It was like a light bulb going off in my head. I thought, yeah. well, that's a good idea. What about doing the Queen? Maybe she could play the Queen. At the end of the read-through, I got so obsessed by the idea all the way through the read-through, I couldn't think about anything else. And at the end, I rushed up to her. And I said, Helen, that was great, that was great. Um, you know, have you ever... Uh, can I ask you a, a sort of rather odd question? Can you do posh as well? <laughs> Would you like to play the Queen? <laughs> Shall we make a movie about the Queen? Would you be the Queen? Well, she must have thought it was a very odd thing to ask her immediately well, after, I rather than saying, what a wonderful performance she'd given in the Prime Suspect. There you Reed go, Street. that's life. You never miss, a, never miss an opportunity. Yeah. And uh, so that was it, really. And I got Stephen Free. We got... Uh, I rang Stephen Frears, who'd made the deal with us, and he thought it was a jolly good idea. And he, he knew Helen a little bit. And then I rang Peter, and uh, Peter was intrigued, cautious initially, yes. understandably so. And because um, there's plenty of people who could have been as cross about that as anybody was ever going to be about Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, because Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, they may be prime ministers, but they're ultimately they're politicians who are fair game to be attacked in any way. But the idea of showing, I don't know, an unsympathetic portrait of the Queen and the way she reacted immediately after. Diana died, which is also baked into this last series of The Crown, you'd have thought you're more likely to end up in the Tower of London for that than for saying anything about the current Prime Minister. Well, I, I, first of all, it took Peter quite a long time to work out 
what the story of the Queen was. It was all very well having the idea that Helen Mirren was the Queen, but what was the movie? What aspect of Elizabeth's story were we going to focus on? Now, as it happened, Helen was about the right age to play the Queen, essentially, in the 90s. At that age, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then it was sort of, it was going back, it, almost immediately, it was sort of obvious, I suppose, that some aspect of the Diana story was what we should examine and ultimately write the, the, the script about. And that's what Peter found his way into that script and found the chronology of that week, which I don't think had really been understood and examined. And I think that's what Peter does so brilliantly. He looks at contemporary history, he looks at, you know, with distance, and it was about 10 years, obviously, after the event at that point in time, and was able to make sense of it. So roll forward, you did the Queen, you then yeah. did the audience, which is, you know, sort of... Well, yes, so we, we did the Queen, that was huge, wasn't it? That was a massive yeah. great hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then Peter and I did some other things together and separately. And then we rolled, I don't know, rolled for three or four years. And then he called me up and said he he was thinking about writing a play. And we had some lunch to discuss it. And the the play the, the play was to become the audience. Yeah. And he was keen to see whether what I thought about it and whether I thought Helen would do it because he didn't really want to write it unless Helen was going to do it. Okay. And our, my view was, well, unless you write it, Helen isn't going to be able to make a decision. So he said, well, that's ridiculous, that's ridiculous. I mean, you can call her up and tell her it's going to be great and she'll do it. And I go, no, I don't think it will work like that, Peter. But anyway, true to form, literally sort of 10 days later, two weeks later, the play arrived into my inbox. And it was fabulous. I thought it was a really very clever idea, a very Peter idea, to look at the role of the monarch through a revolving number of her serving prime ministers, which at that point had number 12. There were 12 prime ministers that had, had served but under it, her. But it did have a problem that with the first prime minister, she was about 23 years old, which is... Helen Mirren wasn't the right age. Well, this is where you have to, you know, have some... Use uh, makeup and wigs. (laughs) Well, the funny thing was... The magic of theatre. You you can laugh, actually, but Peter wrote this without any idea about how we were going to do this. I think somehow he thought imaginatively, God bless him, thought somehow that it would just imaginatively get sorted out. And so he made no concessions to it in the actual first draft of the play whatsoever. And it wasn't until Stephen Daldry came on board that he sort of looked at it and went, yeah, right, okay, uh, this, is, this is quite challenging. And then had to, really had to break the play down and work out how Because you could have cast a younger actress as the young queen and then get Helen to come in. Well, you could have done all, the num- interval all number whatever. of different things. But, I mean, I think you want, you want, you know, you wanted to put Helen uh, centre stage yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and show her extraordinary range and her ability to play uh, old, old, young to old. Yeah. I saw it. It was a brilliant success and it also had wonderful performances from various different actors as the various different prime ministers. So now we come forward to the crown and mm. the world has changed. So mm. it was logical, I guess, to do The Queen as a feature film. That was probably where you would aspire to get something with a theatrical release. Mm. By the time of The Crown, we have the streaming world has changed the face of television and there's the opportunity to do big ambitious multi-episodic things and netflix which of course is where it ended up have done things like house of cards which you know a similarly high prestige multi-episodic yes. drama so uh, what i'm curious to know is when you came to see me at itv did you even then think really this is going to be in america because if you make it for an american streaming service one they've got the money obviously. But leaving totally aside the money and the ambition of it, had you made it with a UK broadcaster, and I remember making this point in a meeting, there would have been greater sensitivities about what you could and couldn't say about the royal family. And I remember arguing that's going to be at its worst with the BBC, 
because the BBC and the royal family, when they clash, clash big and have done historically in a number of uh, occasions, one of which I've got to, you know, full disclosure, led to my departure from the BBC. <laughs> so I had personal good. experience of this, of how when the BBC and the royal family lock horns, it's not pretty. Were you thinking like that or would you, had the, I don't know, the world of the streamers not developed as it was at that time, have cheerfully made it as a series for the BBC or Channel 4 or ITV or any UK broadcaster? It's a very good question. Uh, I think... I, the answer, I don't really know. The answer, that, what basically happened is that Peter had been in New York writing a movie or two, and I kept saying to him to come back to the UK. He was fed up with writing this movie, which wasn't getting made. I kept saying, come back, you know, you've got to channel your inner Aaron Sorkin and write a big television series. Peter had had dabbled in television, lots and lots. He'd done lots for me, but he'd never really written a big, big series. And uh, I knew he was perfectly capable of it, and I knew that he would bring him enormous satisfaction if he could just settle down and get stuck in. So I didn't make any suggestions to what that series should be. I just felt he should come back to London and get stuck in. And the first thing he did was to ring me up and said, what about something... This was harkening back to the audience, really. What about what about a movie with the young Elizabeth and Winston Churchill, the old Winston Churchill sort of? And I, and it was a, it was a good pitch, and I I said, yeah, well, don't think it's as strong as the King's Speech or the Queen. I think it's interesting. To, he said, well, well, all right. He said, well. I think maybe it's a miniseries anyway, because there's a lot to it. There's a lot of interest. You know, I, the more I'm reading about it, the more I'm getting excited about it. So I said, OK, well, play around with it as a miniseries. And then, I don't know, about a week later, he comes back to me and said, I've had a, I've had a, I've had a, a different idea. I think we should do three series about the Queen Elizabeth Ray. We should have three queens and three different series. I said, oh, that's pretty ambitious. He said, yeah, yeah, I'm really very, very excited about this. I, I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm very excited about it. And then another week later, he came back and said, no, 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 no. It's, it, six, no, it's six series. <laughs> He's doubled it. He said, it's six series, and it, well, we changed the cast every two seasons. Exactly. I mean, we pretty well pinpointed it from the beginning right to the end. It's pretty, we've done pretty much exactly what he wanted to do. The very the idea that he came up right at the very beginning, he sketched it out, and we've pretty much kept to it. Well, we have kept to it, not pretty much. But after your it. meetings with BBC and ITV, you got a plane, you went to America, you went round and saw presumably more than one streaming service. Ted Sarandos at Netflix, he was, you know, the man with a huge new checkbook, huge ambitions, could see the global nature of it, could see how it could be a kind of prestige Netflix series. Did he write a check for six series or did he say, well, let's do one and see whether anybody watches it? Well, you're jumping to the end of the of, of a fascinating. Well, go back. What is interesting yeah. about it is that the Netflix meeting was the very last meeting after right. a week in New York, and what we had really realised is uh, as we started to, it's true, we came to see the BBC and we came to see you, Peter, at ITV yeah. to test the waters. What we found was much enthusiasm from the BBC and even more enthusiasm from you at ITV. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. But in truth. And neither the BBC or ITV could offer us much more than £800,000, way less than a million an ep for the mm. show. We are, our back of the envelope projections has already put this series around the four to five million mark. But you could have made it with money from the BBC stroke ITV and then a co-production arrangement with a big American we could. network or cable or HBO we or whatever. I mean, there, lots, there were many ways of skinning the cat. Indeed, there? and that's exactly what we set out to do to achieve in America. So we went to see all the big guns 
and they all turned us down, every single one. So by the, the last day, we didn't have a pot wow. to piss in. Wow. And had the Netflix meeting not gone in the way it had gone, the crown would not have happened. Oh, no, not necessarily. You'd have come back to me. No, wouldn't have made it for that. Couldn't, oh, great. No money. So I wasted my energy in that meeting. You did, but you well, enjoyed yeah, it. Well, yeah, but we could have we could have got one for the memoirs. What are you worried about? <laughs> I do remember. I don't think you asked us in the meeting, will you commission this? I don't think it was as definitive as that because I remember you and Peter and Stephen did the meeting. Well, I say that you hardly said anything and you're you're not shy. You're not a kind of, you know, shrinking violet in a pitch meeting, Andy. <laughs> I think I can exclusively reveal that to the world. <laughs> if Andy needs to do a tap dance in a pitch meeting, he'll he will, do it. He will come in wearing well, his really tap need dancing to got Peter. Exactly. Well, you had a couple of Oscar winners on either side of you and they did a lot of talking and they were very convincing. And what's more, well, what's more, you had already all both. You know, both We'd read a script, but we had a script, few questions I mean, to ask. No, the reason I was going to say that I have a memory of, of you all left. So I then turned to my commissioning colleagues. I'm not going to name names here because they were good colleagues and I really liked them. And I said to my commissioning colleagues, well, what do you think, guys? What do we do next? And one of them said to me, hmm, it doesn't know what it is yet. <laughs> and I've always thought ever since then, that is such a typically, dare I say it, self-aggrandizing thing for a commission to say. The implication being these three people Andy Harris, Stephen Daldry and Peter Morgan don't really know what this is or what to do with it. But with a bit of help from us commissioners, we'll turn this raw material into a polished series. And you can say what you like about The Crown. Uh, you can love it or hate it or whatever, but it sure as hell knows what it is. There was someone else at Channel 4 who I slipped it to as well. Yes. Who came back many, many weeks later and said, would need a lot of work to make it work for Channel 4. Oh, yeah, yeah. God bless them. I wonder what that means. I wonder what that means. But in a way, one, it was great that you did have the meeting with Netflix. You didn't fly out of town before you'd even seen Netflix. But the timing was perfect in terms of the expansion, both of Netflix budget and their ambition and their sense of, you know, if we're going to make a big splash in this world of streaming, we've got to commit big to big yeah, things. No question. We were the right team in the right place with the right project yes. and the right network who were ready to spend money and fulfill our dreams. How quickly did the level of success become clear to you? Because we know that with streaming services, I know this from you know doing work for streaming services, they're pretty guarded with their data. It's not like have you if you make a series for BBC One, say, you can wake up the next morning and know how many people watched it, that's becoming a little bit eroded by the balance between catch-up services like the iPlayer and linear viewing. But still, the one will give you a guide to the other. Much less so with streaming services. Did you immediately sense this is going to go on and win uh, what I think is 21 Emmys? Or was it a slower burn than that? Well, that's a good question. I think, what, you know, it, look, it felt good, All the way, I'll be honest with you, almost as soon as we started filming, particularly when, when Stephen Daugherty's rushes started coming through. Yeah, and he brought, I mean, I, I can relate to that because I remember watching the first couple of episodes you thought, oh my goodness, this doesn't feel like television. No. Stephen brought a cinematic visual flair to it. He did, it was yeah. quite extraordinary. Yeah, quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that was all very pleasurable and rewarding. And then, you know, obviously, as soon as the first 
first couple of films were sort of ready. We started to test them privately in the UK and we got an amazingly good reaction. So that all was very encouraging. But what I think really the breakthrough actually was the Golden Globes. It was the where the Foreign Press Association decided that we were rather good news. And if you think about this, this is a way obvious because the foreign press all live in LA, but they're not from they're not Americans. They're mainly Europeans. And so along comes this very well budgeted, well executed a historical period drama about the royal family and which they got very excited about and uh, once it was lauded at the Golden Globes and started winning things in a sense it sort of crashed that the American award system crashed into it if you like and suddenly it was there we've always known that the Americans are kind of obsessed with the British royal family yeah, so, they are. so they you were you, you were playing to a willing audience across the world because it's in so many countries are there parts of the world where the, the magic doesn't work for them or it works less than you might think you know do you get that kind of detail that you you know 89% of people in Norway have watched it but only 37% of people in in Bolivia or whatever do you see what I mean well I'm sure that's right <laughs> well no, I'm making that up obviously I have the faintest idea I'm trying well, to think of countries where they well, might think obviously... the British royal family who cares well I know there's plenty of countries I think you'd probably say who cares I I mean, obviously, we always do well in Commonwealth countries, if you like, because they feel a connection to it and an association with the stories. Uh, but, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not terribly good at remembering all the odd statistics, whether we're vast in Russia and zero in, in Mongolia or anything. But, uh, but you know, I, it, it does well in all the areas you'd expect it to do well, which is exactly what Netflix and their algorithms had told them. So... We've got six more episodes, and they come out December the 14th, yes. in my mind. So very shortly before Christmas, and as you've already sort of indicated, kind of end, you know, with a happy ending, because Camilla and Charles get married, and there's still no shortage of controversy in the life of the royal family, but I can well see that that's a very good point to bow out. Obviously, the royal family's been around for much longer than the last 60 or 70 years. Do you find yourself thinking about or talking to Peter about, should we do the Tudors? Should we do the Edwardians? Oh, I'm glad you're asking that, not, not asking about Harry and Meghan. No, 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 no. I wasn't going to ask Harry we, and Meghan we, at we, all. Because I don't feel it's particularly interesting to try to ambulance chase the royal stories yeah. of the last few years. But I know I'm not thinking of the whole Prince Harry of it at all, to be perfectly honest. So obviously people are obsessed with the Harry and Megan and I'm, I don't know, have you read Spare, Harry's no, book? I Nor have I. So we can both agree we haven't read Spare, but I'm sure it's jolly good. No, I'm thinking, do you leapfrog back into the other? I mean, one of my favourite series growing up on ITV, Granada, possibly Granada, was called Edward and Mrs. Simpson. Yes. Do you remember that? Excellent. I think Excellent. that was the original series yeah. that says you can turn the royal family into great television drama. That yeah. was... Edward Fox, mm. was it not? Playing, was, yeah. playing the abdicating King Edward VIII. There's so many periods of royal history that are rich. Would you do that? Yeah, the abdication, I think, it is something we have, have chatted about. I think it uh, it's obviously been done in many different different ways, yeah, including a film by Madonna. But uh, if you remember... Madonna? Yeah. What, did she play Mrs. Simpson? She, she, Surely not. She did. Did she? Yeah. So you might you might dip further. Back well, I think right now I agree. You shouldn't ambulance chase. That would that would. So right good. now there are no immediate plans to do it. Yeah. We all need a bit of a rest from the royals, and I'm sure the royals will be thrilled to need hear a rest that. from you. Yeah. Yes. But I, you know, in time, the, you know, the crown is a great brand, of course, and nobody says never in television, as you know. Mm. 
there are over and above the obvious stories, the Henry VIII's and the Tudors and all that kind of stuff. I think there's plenty of royal stories that could well provide uh, great television and great metaphors for modern life, great parallels for modern life, if you like. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. I mean, people tend to focus on relatively narrow periods. The Tudors traditionally rate in just crude yeah. television no, no, terms, no, I mean, this is whereas you get into the Jacobeans and for some reason they don't, and nobody knows why. And nobody's made a film about the, or a series about William of Orange yet either. No. Well, that's the... There you go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, this is an exclusive for Have You Seen? You've heard it here. Andy, Harris and Peter Morgan might be making a film about William of Orange and the glorious revolution of 1688. Or am I wrong? <laughs> uh, well, look... It's been great talking to you, Andy. And I know you are a very busy man and we're at the kind of probably busiest period of your year when you're launching not one, but two parts of the final series of The Crown. Apologies that my partner, Mariella, wasn't here today. That's very disappointing. But on the other hand, I've been interrupted considerably less than I normally (laughs) am. I've been able to get a word in edgeways and it's been great fun discussing The Crown with you. Good. Well, it's a pleasure. So thank you very much for asking me. We're particularly keen to hear from you, our listeners, about what you've been watching, what you've hated, what you've loved and what we're missing or getting wrong. So do send us an email. You can get in touch via our socials or you can WhatsApp us. All the info is in the description. Thanks for listening and thanks to Andy for being such a great guest. If you enjoyed the show, please do follow Have You Seen wherever you get your podcasts. Do join us next week when not only will Mariella be back to whip us all into shape, but we'll also be joined by the fantastic Mel Gedroich to hear what she's been watching recently. Thanks for listening. See you next Thursday. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.